Good evening. Let me reiterate Duncan's welcome. It's great to have you out tonight. Um, The passage we're looking at is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Um, And we'll come to that in just a moment. What does success look like? A decent job? A comfortable home? Being able to give financially to the church? Having a good standing or position in the church? To have a respectable status amongst your friends and your neighbours? Or good relationships with your family? Or perhaps just to be known as a good and decent person? How do you attain this? Work hard, make sacrifices, be disciplined, pray, read your Bible, be a role model, give generously with your time and your money. Many of these ambitions are not necessarily wrong, and many of the means in achieving them are not wrong. But when we understand Paul's idea of success and his, meaning for, or his means of attaining it, we may see that our ideas of success are far too me-centered and our means of attaining it far too me-dependent. Our natural ideas of success expose the fact that our hearts are selfish. We are self-promoting and self-reliant. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and tells them that success in the Christian life should look very different, and the means of attaining it is not found inside of themselves, It is completely outside of them. Success in the Christian life is gospel-centered and it's Christ-centered. It's Christ-found, Christ-given, and Christ-driven. Paul says to the church at Philippi, the only way up in the Christian life is down. And the only way into the Christian life is outside of you. Let's turn to the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight and Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Paul writes to the Philippians from one of the lowest places we might imagine, inside a Roman prison facing persecution and death. But none of this affects his success or his joy. In his writing and in his living, he is in fact rejoicing. It's one of the main themes of the letter. He rejoices in the Lord. He has joy because of the advancement of the gospel, despite of and in fact because of his situation. 
He also has joy that the Christians in Philippi have partnered with him from day one in the proclamation of the gospel. The joy of the gospel is Paul's number one joy and priority for life. Here in chapter two of this letter, Paul wants to press home to the church in Philippi how they ought to live. He's concerned that they as a church continue to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that they should continue to stand as one for the faith of the gospel, that they would be united in sharing in his gospel joy. It's to make this joy complete that Paul instructs the church at Philippi. There's no explicit fault or error in the church at Philippi that Paul is needing to address here, but he is aware of the ever-present threat of disunity or disagreement or even fracture within the church. When we look down through the ages, it's clear that this is one of the devil's most effective means of derailing the mission of the church, destroying the reputation of the church, and tarnishing the name of Jesus. How often do we hear of people who have been turned away from Jesus because of the actions of the gathered believers in the local church? How many times have we heard Christians leaving churches because of trivial arguments and peripheral concerns? How sad it is when we hear stories of Christians who no longer have fellowship with one another because of a long-held grudge over an insignificant argument. Because of these things, we can too often hear and understand statements from non-Christians that echo the one made by Gandhi when he said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. In reflecting On the statement from Gandhi, Paul might say to Christians today that the reason for such a response from those outside the church is that as Christians, we like ourselves far more than we like Christ. In the section of Philippians we're looking at tonight, it's this very attitude that Paul is keen to guard the church at Philippi against. He would say to them, don't love yourselves, love Christ. He wants to prevent disunity in the church so that the mission of the church is not derailed. He is keen to protect the church from the disunifying and destructive force of self-love and self-promotion. And the prescription he gives is humility. It seems very simple, but the reality is that naturally speaking, it's impossible for us. It comes back to the fact that we have naturally selfish hearts. None of us can live like this except for Christ and for those who are united in Christ. So I've divided tonight's message into two main points that you'll see. The only way up in the Christian life is down. And we see that in the first five verses of chapter two. And the only way into the Christian life is outside of us, in Christ. And we see that in the remainder of the verses six to 11. So the only way up in the Christian life is down. At the start of the sermon, I asked the question, what does success look like? We thought there about individual success. Now, what if we were to ask the same question, but apply it to the church? What does a successful church look like? Or to bring it closer to home, what does success look like for Hebron Evangelical Church? A nice building, healthy finances, steady attendance, Of course, we instinctively and correctly say no to this. But so often the things that cause us annoyance and frustration or even excitement 
are a far better indicator of what we really value than what we say we value. What was the focus of your last heated discussion about church? What was the focus of your most recent Thanksgiving? Do we spend time worrying and arguing about the furniture, the decor, the mess, the misplaced books, the technology? Do you lie awake at night worrying about the money? Or do you get a warm glow because of the the healthy finances of the church? Do you despair when you see empty seats? Or do you get excited to see a full house? Again, many of these things are not bad necessarily, but none of them is the gospel. The church website, under a section marked Our Purpose, states that as a church, we exist to exalt God's name, equip God's people, and evangelize the world. How often do you think these things dominate our own concern for the church here? These are gospel-centered goals, and the extent to which we are united in these things is a marker of our success as a church. This chimes with Paul's idea of success for Christians and for churches. It is gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Christ-given, and Christ-driven. Anything which distracts from the gospel mission of the church threatens the success of the local church. And for Paul, one of the most present threats to success of the church at Philippi is the threat of disunity. It's to this end that Paul instructs the church, and his instruction is humility. The only way up is down. What is the goal of this kind of humility that Paul commands the church at Philippi? It's a gospel unity. A people with a shared love for Christ and the gospel. A people with a shared spirit and a shared purpose in mind. That of the proclamation of the gospel and the glory of Christ. It is to that end that Paul instructs the Philippians to act humbly. This means doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Doing nothing out of self-promotion or to increase their own standing or status. Doing nothing to take any advantage of others for personal gain or fame. It means lowering themselves. It means valuing others more than they value themselves and looking to the needs of the others in the church before their own needs. For this kind of humility to become a reality in our church, we need at least two things. We need to be a people who are prepared to be humble enough to serve those around us, to take our eyes away from our own interests and look to the interests of others. This is something that many of you are already excelling at. But the other thing that we need, which I think as a church and as perhaps as Scots or Northeast Scotland folks, we find much more difficult, is to be humble enough to realize that we too need help. If we only see ourselves as the helpers and never see or reveal our own need for help, we can turn our service of helping others into a source of pride and arrogance, the very opposite of humility. We as a church need to be full of people humble enough to show and share our weaknesses, to accept assistance, to realize we cannot and should not be self-sufficient. We need outside help. It isn't this the very kind of humility that is required to bring us 
into the Christian life in the first place. Humility that has given up the pretense that we can make it on our own and instead looks to something or rather someone outside of ourselves. Paul's keen to remind the Philippians of that very fact. Having told them that the only way up is down, he wants to remind them that the only way into the Christian life is outside of them. So he lifts their gaze to Christ. Our second point, the only way into the Christian life is outside of us. Paul points to the necessity of Christ for Christian humility in verse 1 of chapter 2 by addressing the Philippian church as those united with Christ. He further underlines this point in verse 5, where Paul gives the instruction, which is rendered in the ESV, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The simple and essential point is this. You cannot be Christ-like without Christ, without being in Christ, being united to Christ. Paul knows that even those who are in Christ, however, are prone to lose sight of him and live by their own strength and for their own glory. Especially, and ironically, at Christmas time, we can become self-obsessed, obsessed with tinsel and toys, food and fuss, and so easily forget what it's all about. Paul would have us divert our gaze away from our own self-interest and away from the glamorized Christmas of our own making. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, Paul shows us the reality and humility of Christmas, the reality and humility of Christ. And Paul's purpose here is not merely to list some facts about Jesus. It's to get us to really look at him, to look at him and live, to live because of him, to live for him, to live like him. The only way into the Christian life is in Jesus. So who is he? First and foremost, in verse 6, Paul tells us that Jesus is God. It's stated so matter-of-factly. Jesus, in his very nature, or in his inmost form, at the very core of his being, is God. John 1.1, which we've had read already, tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning, before time began. Jesus was with God, and he was God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, an exact representation of his being. Jesus is the eternally existing, all-powerful, sovereign creator God. Just cast your minds back to this morning's address from Willie, to get a fuller picture of what that means. From this highest of positions, enthroned in heaven, Jesus, the creator, descends into a depth of humility that is unimaginably great. Jesus, who was equal with God, equal in authority and power and dominion, chose not to cling on to the rights and privileges he had as God. He chose not to use them to his own advantage. Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Without ever ceasing to be God, he humbled himself by putting on something weak and vulnerable and humble. He took the form, our nature, our very being of a servant and became a man. 
The God who created us stooped to serve us. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a real flesh and blood human man, born as a fleshy, dependent, crying baby. And born not in a palace as a prince with vast wealth and a sprawling empire, but born in a stable to a no-one family in a nowhere town with no status, no wealth, no privilege. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus shared our humanity. And in chapter 2, verse 17 of Hebrews, we're told that he was made human in every way. We see the humanity of Jesus in the hunger of Jesus, the pain of Jesus, the tiredness, the tears, the temptation. He was human in every way, yet crucially, he was completely without sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is perfect man. But why did Jesus come as a man? Well, this Jesus, having lowered himself to such an unbelievable degree, now goes further. He chooses to die willingly, and not just any death. He chose that most repugnant of things, the shameful, disgraceful, torturous device of corporal punishment, reserved only for the lowest of the low, the cross. But remarkably, this death, this humiliation was God's plan all along. Jesus, speaking of his hold on his life in John 10:18, says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The humility and death of Christ was not the uncontrolled, spiraling descent of a powerless man, nor was it that of a God who had lost his grip. It was the purposeful, decisive, unfaltering mission of God. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in Mark 10:45, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like you. But here, here is where the humiliation of Christ turns to exaltation. As Christ hung on the cross, he was achieving the goal of his humiliation, our salvation. Peter in Acts 2.36 tells us that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus, through his death, has brought us life. And he is now again enthroned in heaven, in his rightful place, given the name above every name, seated at the right hand of the Father. When we see Jesus for who he truly is, how can we not fall on our faces? How can we possibly think highly of ourselves and boast in ourselves? When we see the humility of Christ, we should 
be humbled. We must worship him because he is worthy. He who is fully God and fully man through his humility and death offers us life. The way into real life is not found in ourselves but in him alone. The way into the Christian life is completely outside of us. If these points are true, if it is true that the only way up in the Christian life is down, if the only way to success is humility, and if the only way to live in this Christian humility is found outside ourselves, well, what should that look like for us today? What should that mean for us? How do we apply that to our lives? Well, firstly, if, if the only way up is down in Christ-like humility, the only way for the church to succeed, humility is essential for church unity. This means that we as individuals must be willing to value others more highly than we value ourselves, to put others' needs before our own. A concrete example of that is how we behave when there's decisions to be made in areas of church practice where there is liberty, such as styles of music, times of meetings, structures of services. We must each be prepared to set aside our own perceived needs and preferences in favor of others with a unity of mind, spirit, and love that sets the gospel as our number one priority. Another application on this for church unity is that we must also be willing to make ourselves vulnerable as Christ himself made himself vulnerable. We must be willing to accept and depend on the help of our brothers and sisters. We need to be willing to be weak and accept help. True humility both offers and receives help. Humility is also essential for the mission of the church. Living missional lives requires humility, which involves suffering and sacrifice. We need to be willing to put self-interest to one side and take gospel-focused risk. Risk of our possessions, of our security, of our status, of our respectability, of our career, of our families even. We as a church need to see, I need to see, that the next generation of Christians that make up this congregation do not need this building or its bank balance half as much as they need an example and a legacy of humble, gospel-centered, joyful suffering as we seek to evangelize the world around us whatever the cost. Another implication for mission is a financial one, but not perhaps in the way that you might expect. The point I want to make is this, that for humility in the mission of the church, we need to recognize that God does not need our money. 
We are blessed as a church to have the resources to give to the work of the gospel, funding mission at home and abroad. And that is a wonderful thing and something we should do and continue to do. But we need to be very careful in how we value the money that we give to God. God does not need our money. In fact, one of the clearest commands of God to the church in terms of humble mission work is the need for workers. We're told that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Are you prepared to humble yourself to be available for the mission of the church? And to our second point, if it is true that the only way in to the gospel, the way into the Christian life is outside of us, what impact should that have? Well, if you're not a Christian, recognize that humility is essential for salvation. And what I mean is this, the only way into the Christian life to become a Christian is through the humility of Jesus Christ. Your good works, church attendance, giving to charity, being a good neighbor are useless and worthless. If we're arrogant enough to think that our good works are good enough, we're in trouble. Stop working to try to earn favor with God and have the humility to recognize that God has gift-wrapped his favor for you. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. It is a gift of grace. Let me close with a, a few final remarks. If we are in Christ, if we call ourselves Christians, if we have looked to Christ and fallen on our faces, humbled by the humility of Christ, we can know that we will one day be like Christ and be with Christ. But for now, we are called to look to the humility of Christ, to imitate the humility of Christ, and to know that we have life only because of the humility of Christ. The only way up is down. The only way in is outside of us. If we are to return to our opening question, what does success look like? What does a successful Christian life look like? What does a successful church look like? Well, it looks humble. It looks like a community of people valuing others above themselves. It looks like putting the needs of others before our own. It looks like setting aside our own ambitions and desires, lowering ourselves so that we can lift others up and glorify God. It looks like Christ. And how do we attain this kind of humility? We look to Christ we look to Christ to live. We look to the humility of Christ that has saved us. And we continue to look to Christ so that the humility of Christ might shape us. When we do this, we become more like Christ. And the church succeeds in being united in love, in spirit, in purpose for the progress of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we 
we thank you for the humility of Christ. We thank you that he, who was God from all eternity, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he freely gave up his rights and privileges, thinking not of himself, but of us, unworthy as we are. Father, help us to be humbled by the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ that made him a servant and a ransom for us. The humility of Christ that took him to the cross to die an unimaginable death so that we might be spared an unimaginable eternity. And Father, we thank you that as we have seen Christ in his humility, for those of us who have been saved by Christ, by being united to Christ, we thank you that we can look forward to being with Christ and to being made like Christ. But Lord, help us here and now to imitate the humility of Christ as a church, as individuals, that the mission of the church here would succeed, that the gospel would go forth from this place, and that many would hear and see Christ and be saved. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you For Christ. Amen.